My bulky blender was such a pain to use, I ended up hardly ever using it at all. But the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender makes blending so easy and convenient, I use it just about every day. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. It lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C cord. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a Blendjet 2 to complement just about any style. I absolutely love the Lisa Frank edition. What are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to Blendjet.com and use the code ANALYTICS12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Hello, and welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Carbon is my co-host, and together we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get right to what's on your radar this week, Carbon. All right, we'll do Russia-Ukraine and then get into Israel-Hamas, as we have done every week since October. Uh, But, you know, last week I talked about the uh, U.S. and the U.K. fighting the Houthis going on the offensive. Well, that continues, so the fight is continuing there in Yemen uh, and the Red Sea. We did have a quick spat between Iran and Pakistan. That was a pretty surprising move uh, for both of those. And I want to get into the results from the Taiwanese election as the Taiwanese people elected a president that is anti-reintegration with China. And we'll talk into the we'll talk about the implications of that. I do have an update on China's uh, Taiwan timeline that I found out over the last couple of weeks, and I'm able to share that with everybody, so we'll get into that. And finally, um, our wild card, as I always say, uh, we're going to talk about North Korea because there are some reports out that Kim Jong-un may be ready for war with South Korea. Before we um, get into it, are you feeling okay? Because you sound... I am not. Sick. (laughs) You do feel bad. I say, did I send you some COVID? (laughs) No, I don't think it's, I don't think it's COVID. I think because I was out hiking through the cold air. I guess we can talk about that at the end, but I just wanted to address your voice. You sound like me, the way I usually sound. (laughs) (laughs) I am sorry to everybody, and uh, and I can't hear it. Like, I know that I don't sound the name. right now. <laughs> well, I mean, at least you had fun in the mountains. I, I don't know. You haven't really told me too much about it yet, so I don't know 
I mean, we can get into that. Was it fun? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Let's let's um, focus and get back to what's really important here. Yes. <laughs> so, what is the latest coming out of Ukraine? Well, the the stalemate continues there. Um, so, pushing past Ukraine, there were recent reports from uh, the nonprofit that is the Institute for the Study of War that indicate that Russian leader Vladimir Putin has intensified his rhetoric against the Baltic states. And this is particularly against Latvia. Now, that think tank suggests this might set the stage for a potential escalation with the Eastern European NATO members. Putin's criticism of Latvia's immigration laws and the allegations of expelling ethnic Russians seem to be part of a broader effort to weaken NATO. Now, Putin could be creating conditions for potential future escalations against those Baltic countries, just like he did with Ukraine. So to me, this echoes pattern seen before the invasion of Ukraine, like mm-hmm. Putin's remarks about Ukraine committing genocide against ethnic Russians were used as a pretext for the unprovoked invasion. Do you feel like this is him kind of, this is like his MO before he, you know, invades <laughs> another yeah, country, I, another innocent country? I definitely do. It's, it's very similar, just like you said. Um, but I'd say we're not as close as we were to an invasion. Um, like the Ukraine invasion when we first started the podcast in 2021 and we started to speak out about Russia's imminent invasion. And I I still don't assess that Putin is ready to invade a NATO country. Uh, I think he really wants to wait for the elections to be over so that he can reassess his grip on the Russian people. Okay, well, we have a lot more to get to. So let's talk about the Israel-Hamas conflict. What is the latest going on in the Middle East? Yes, so as as the war continues um, and Israel sees growing dissent from even allies around the globe, we're now seeing fractures within the Israeli government about how the country has handled this war. Uh, This comes from Gadi Eisenkot. He's a key member of Israel's war cabinet, and he has accused Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of not being truthful about the country's military goals in Gaza. Now, Netanyahu has rejected this, and despite his rejection of a future Palestinian state, Eisenkot, who's a a retired general, has criticized those advocating absolute defeat of Hamas. Um, He states that that's just not truthful. Uh, Eisenkot has held Netanyahu responsible for failing to protect the country on October 7th, and he called for fresh elections due to a lack of trust in the current leadership. So how are the people of Israel reacting to Netanyahu's actions in this ground offensive? Because I've seen a lot of supportive videos of it. Yeah, of him. they're, they're both, both sides of this. Um, but I can say right now, because of how long this is going on, um, it, it's not really looking good for Netanyahu. Um, this is because of the escalating deaths in Gaza. So Netanyahu's popularity, even within Israel, has diminished. Um, he, he wasn't really that popular to begin with, um, even before this all started. So he had his kind of group of people, right, that would support him no matter what. But now he's he's kind of losing those people as well. There was a, a recent poll indicates low support for him um, whatever the war is over. Now, while most Israelis support military action against Hamas, not Gaza, but Hamas, 
there is a shift towards prioritizing the release of the hostages over the challenging goal of destroying Hamas complete, completely. Now, Netanyahu's rejection of a future Palestinian state actually aligns with his hardline anti-Palestinian stance, d- despite you know potential incentives from Saudi Arabia, because they're asking for normalization in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I would say Netanyahu's political survival does seem to be tied to an anti-Palestinian position, um, and he's distancing himself from being perceived as uh, Mister Security. That's a you know, that's what some people call him, or uh, um, to just quote those people. But now he is considering himself as Mister No Independent Palestine. So this is not making him very popular among the Israeli people. Well. In light of Netanyahu's apparent opposition to a two-state solution and his reluctance to support a Palestinian state, well, I don't know if I'd call it reluctance. It's just more hardlining. No, oh, that's he true, doesn't want yeah. a Palestinian state at all. Uh, kind of reminiscent of the from the river to the sea sentiment. Um, how does Netanyahu address this seeming contradiction? And what is the stance of a key ally such as the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so he would probably say that Gaza is run by a terrorist organization and should not exist. While Israel was given the land back in 1948, they fought several mm-hmm. wars to defend that land. And that those are his words. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say which side... I'm yeah, you're not just you're not justifying anything. Those are just oh, his justifications for correct. it. Yeah, okay. you, you got to go inside the head of the of the person that you're talking about. Um, so that that's what that would be what he says. The fact is, <clears throat> I, I don't think we can get to a two state solution right now. Um, so I have seen several videos. Uh, obviously, Netanyahu saying this stuff, but also Hamas leaders have gone on the record over the last two weeks stating they would only agree to a two-state solution in order to reconsolidate forces and prepare for a regional conflict that annihilates the state of Israel. Oh, okay. There's just no solution that's going to appease both sides of this. Right. Okay, well... I also asked about, you know, their allies, like like the United States, who have been a very fervent supporter yep. since October 7th, you know, since this whole thing. I mean, obviously, we've been a supporter of Israel yeah. a lot longer than that, but we've been openly saying where we stand on this conflict. And it was in, you know, Israel's corner, our country. Correct. Okay, so how do they feel about the two-state solution? Well, the Biden administration is very much in favor of a two-state solution. They're yeah. straddling the fence here because um, they want yeah. to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like you're of like course quit being, we are. Quit saying, stating the obvious. <laughs> yeah, we're playing both sides of this field. Oh yeah, um, you know the, the U.S. does want to see a peaceful resolution. Uh, that peaceful resolution needs to offer freedom to all hostages that were taken on October seventh. Um, but it, right. they also say that it should set a formal two-state solution that also includes new elections in Palestine. Mm-hmm. What's again, highly unlikely to happen. So what we're going to see here is a protracted war um, and the possible spread of a regional conflict. Now, right now, there is some unsubstantiated reporting that Israel is ready to begin a ground offensive in Lebanon after Hezbollah is not backed down from its attacks in Israel. 
uh, just before we started recording today on Saturday, January 20th, um, there are, is some speculation that Israel conducted a strike against leaders of the Iranian um, of the Iranian government and military in Syria. That's not going to go well uh, as far as calming a regional conflict. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, so they're starting to like bring the conflict to other countries? Well, Israel has not said that they did this strike. Iran said okay. that the strike was... No done. one's claimed it yet. Yes, so I'm doing a little bit more research on that, but I did want to make that note. Uh, as far as the, the Hezbollah conversation, just real quick, you know, yeah, th- those two have been fighting since October 7th as well, as Hezbollah has been taking the fight to Israel in the north. And um, at this point, I think Israel is saying they are ready to go on the offensive against Hezbollah in Lebanon. So that regional conflict looks like it is expanding. Yeah, um, it it came to a head this week because um, the the Hezbollah conducted a strike in northern Israel that reportedly killed a mother and child, and so Israel has retaliated. Okay, so obviously we're no closer to peace in the Middle East, <laughs> and the United States have been brought into the fight, right? So. Yep. Last week, the U.S. and the U.K. went on the offensive against the Houthis in Yemen, and that has led to even more attacks from the Houthis. So the question is here in this, you know, whole scenario, are the strikes against Houthi targets working to help destabilize that organization, or is it just emboldening them to, you know, take further action against all of uh, us? <laughs> uh, that's a, that is another great question. Um because it's it's one that actually somebody asked Biden this week. Um, I will say I have to give the guy credit. You know, I don't do that much here on the podcast or in our house. <laughs> that that's not usually what I do. But I really liked his response to the question that you just asked. So I want to quote him directly. Um, so when a journalist asked him if the response against the Houthis was working here, this is what he said. He quote said. When you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. <laughs> that was Biden? Biden said that? Biden said that. <laughs> are they working? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I love it. It's a great comment. Which is <laughs> wasting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's its own way to think about it. Well, if it's not working... I mean, I guess, I don't know, what would the alternative be? Um, so, the, the way Diplomacy, I Diplomacy, just have a conversation. Let's bring everybody to the table and have yeah, a conversation I mean, over a nice meal. <laughs> and that has always worked, right? We've always if, if, only, if only people would be willing to talk, but, you know, most aren't. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so what what is it about that comment that you like so much? Well, I mean, first of all, it, it's an off-the-cuff comment, so it's not political. I really like that, being that it's not political. It becomes factual. That's really how he feels and, and how the U.S. is going to go moving forward. Uh, right now, the, the strikes on the Houthis are not stopping them. So they they will continue to do those strikes until they do stop the Houthis. That's what he's trying to get at. 
Houthis. Like, are are the strikes working right now? Are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes, because that that's the yeah. whole point. So it's a direct message yeah. to the Houthis that the current strikes on their targets are not just warning shots. They are intended to continue until the group no longer exists. Oh, geez. Okay, so let's say the strikes continue and they effectively dismantle the Houthis in Yemen. So what does that mean for everyone else that remains in Yemen, all the civilians? Right. That's that's what's really important, um, honestly, and that's not sarcasm, obviously. Of course not. Yeah. We're Some, for the people. <laughs> people who know me sometimes just don't know when I'm being sarcastic or not. Um, I still don't know when you're being sarcastic <laughs> or not. And our kids, they can't tell. Sometimes you say things and it sounds like you're angry or annoyed or something and you're just messing with them. But you're so good that they can't tell. Yeah. So so I just wanted to put that out there. I, I am way I'm always worried about the actual people. Um, within these countries and the hope is they can establish a government by the people and for the people to take a a Mm. term from the u.s like we've tried to do but didn't work out it worked out for a little bit and yeah look at us now look at me now look at us now look at us (laughs) um and just like here we we know that's a pipe dream especially um in countries that are destabilized like yemen is so it's probably going to be something similar to what happened after the U.S. dismantled Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP. That terror group controlled much of Yemen in the late 2000s and the early aughts. That's why I went out to Yemen. So what happened there? Well, once AQAP was dismantled, the Houthis began to take control of places like Aden, uh, along the Red Sea, the Sea of Aden, Um and they made their way to Sana'a, which is the capital of Yemen. So what, what I'm saying is we would probably see another terror group take over if the Houthis were destroyed. Okay, then why even go on the attack against the Houthis if it's like a Hydra kind of thing? You cut off one head and two more sprout up in its place. Yeah. So, I mean, isn't there a better solution to calming that area of the Middle East, you know, trying not to approach it from a Western mindset like we so frequently do. But is there another alternative to what we're doing right now that hasn't worked the multiple other times it didn't work in Afghanistan, didn't work in Iraq, or just doing the same crap? Yeah, what is that, um, the, the definition of insanity? Yeah, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Yeah, that's that's where we're at. Right yeah, now. so and, so what do we need to do here? Well, I, obviously, we're not diplomacy experts. No, definitely <laughs> we're diplomacy not. experts. I'd, I'd probably be terrible at diplomacy. Um, uh, but you probably this is something you may not have heard me say before. I I do not have an answer for the better solution. Yeah. Mom. I thought I'd ask. I thought I'd ask just in case. Because usually you're pretty good at like coming up with something. (laughs) That's what I always say, right? Like I'm a a solutions person. I want to find the solution before we can actually talk about this. Um, It it just goes back, you know, to what I said about solving Israel and Palestine. We can't solve the problem with Western ideas because it's a Middle East problem. It's rooted in thousands of years of historical violence. But I I will answer the question about why the U.S. and U.K. should continue its strikes. Why that? I do believe that's a good idea. And I say that because just go to the grocery store 
and see how prices have begun to increase because the supply chain has been disrupted. So what's happening in the Red Sea is affecting everyone in their pocketbooks. So the best solution to that is to make that area safe for travel again. So you think we should continue bombing the Middle East because it's affecting American pocketbooks? I, and it's not just American, this is globally. I don't think we should indiscriminately bomb the Middle East. I think we should target the Houthis because those, that's the group that is taking the fight to the merchant ships trying to get through the Red Sea. So targeted strikes against Houthi sites within Yemen. Once, okay. Sorry, oh, still still going? No, no, no. I, I just want to say once once that group is completely diminished and the Red Sea is open again, then we stop strikes. I'm not talking about striking all of the Middle East. I am opposed to that. Okay. Okay. Well, let's stay in the Middle East for now and talk about a really interesting development between Iran and Pakistan what can you tell us about what happened with that earlier this week and how did it start and where do we stand currently? Yeah, this was a big surprise to me and a lot of other um, analysts out there because it started with Iran conducting strikes in Pakistan, targeting Jaysh al-Adil. Uh, it's an ethnic Sunni militant group. Iran is a, um, a Shia country. They're attacking Sunnis. Pakistan condemned the attack. Uh, They said it resulted in civilian casualties that included children. So because of that, Pakistan responded with missile strikes into Iran, claiming to target, quote, terrorist hideouts. Now, those strikes also resulted in casualties, and Iran also condemned that action. Because of that, both nations withdrew their ambassadors initially. However, very quickly a more diplomatic approach prevailed that led to a mutual agreement to stop the violence and restore amicable relations through the return of their ambassadors. If Iran was targeting a militant group within Pakistan, why would they retaliate and cause such a geopolitical debacle? Well, some analysts have said that it was because of domestic pressure. You know, we've got those pesky 2024 elections. And um, and that played a role in Pakistan's decision to retaliate. They have to show that they are going to keep their people safe. It is interesting, though, because tensions in the Middle East are high right now. You got the conflicts with Israel and Hamas in Gaza. You've got Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon. And then activities in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. So that's all going on right now. And then you had this. And... These strikes from Pakistan, that was the first external land attack on Iran since the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq war. Now, Pakistan did justify its retaliation by citing credible intelligence of impending large-scale terrorist activities from Iran. Well, thank you for breaking down that event for us. We need to move on to Taiwan, where the recent presidential election saw the pro-Taiwan independence candidate winning. The whole thing. So what is the latest there and how does this affect the geopolitical landscape in the Indo-Pacific? Because you know China was not too happy. Yeah. Yes, they were not. That is correct. Um, and this was the first of many elections that we had on our radar. So it's the first shoe to drop. Um, and as you said, it resulted in the victory of Democratic Progressive Party 
presidential candidate and the current vice president, Lai Xingte. However, the election did showcase a divide um, among the political landscape as no party secured a majority. The KMT actually won 52 seats within the parliament, where the, the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, got 51 and then that uh, that third party, the Taiwan People's Party, they actually received eight. Okay, so what does that mean for Taiwan? Uh, well, the fragmented political system actually is raising challenges for Taiwan to govern itself. Because officials are going to need to work together across party lines. Think about it in the U.S. How easy do we do that in the U.S.? Not very easy at all. So same here in Taiwan. To achieve a majority in their legislature, both the KMT and DPP are going to have to get support from that third party, the TPP. Because they've got those eight votes, the KMT and DPP are going to have to go after the, the TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, and try to get votes from them so that they can get an, uh, a majority. So Taiwan People's Party, being the smaller party, they have significant bargaining power. I know you teased this out, and I would like to get your full analysis on where we stand with the invasion of Taiwan, but I wanted to ask, without spoiling our next topic, does this election result get us closer to China's invasion of Taiwan? Uh, some experts argue that this victory does not significantly increase that risk. Uh, Beijing may prefer a different outcome, but they those analysts say that President Xi Jinping's risk-benefit calculus suggests that he does not need immediate control of Taiwan. Uh, these election results indicate that an overwhelming majority of Taiwanese people prefer just maintaining the status quo right now. Okay, you said, quote, some analysts, and usually when you say that, you will caveat that with, quote, as do I, and you didn't do that here. Does that mean that you see things differently from other analysts? And I'm asking that to get you to spill the beans about when you think the reintegration of Taiwan will be attempted. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know me all too well. <laughs> yeah. Come on, boy. Give it to um, us. We want, we want the piping hot tea, please. So, and yeah, that's probably the question that everybody has on their mind right now. Um I think we would all love to see the status quo remain in Taiwan, um, that to include better relations between China and the U.S. so that we just have peace, right? Um, but I'm just here to tell everybody uh, from what I am seeing, and this is within the unclassified open source intelligence community, the timeline of that reintegration of Taiwan has refreshed to 2025. That means the pieces are going to be begin to be put in place for China's invasion of Taiwan at some point this year in 2024. Um, sir, that is not the news that we wanted to hear. Thank you very much. Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to hear it either. Um, it, it came out a couple of weeks ago and yeah, I had to start diving in because that's not what I wanted to hear. It's it's just the fact as it stands today. Um, well, yep. Yeah, sorry. I mean, if that's true, what should we be looking for as we get closer to that timeline? So it's going to look a lot like what we saw with Russia on the border of Ukraine, um, except switch the land to sea. 
Yeah, I was about to say, it's not on land. (laughs) So so there's going to be a significant increase in Chinese military presence. Um, That's going to be the deployment of troops, naval assets, um, and then aircraft in the Taiwan Strait. That's going to be a clear indicator. It's also going to be large-scale military exercises conducted by China near the Taiwan Strait, um, or at least in the surrounding waters. And that's going to suggest preparations for the potential invasion. China is also going to increase diplomatic and economic pressure on Taiwan as part of a coordinated strategy. This could involve um, attempts to isolate Taiwan diplomatically, uh, reduce its international recognition, and or impose economic sanctions. Uh, Now, once China starts evacuating its nationals from Taiwan, or if there's like a sudden reduction in economic activities involving Chinese companies on the island of Taiwan, that's when we're getting to days and not months before the invasion. Well, recently there have been reports about China's aging and diminishing population. Do you see Xi taking this into account and possibly delaying an invasion for a couple decades in order to increase that population? Maybe? No, I, I don't. And it's just because oh. he can't predict the future. Uh, neither can we. So Yeah, who's to say that <laughs> the younger generations are going to want to have babies any more than... Right. He's the generations putting, now. He's trying to put <laughs> pressure. Um, and it's always like he's putting pressure on women, which just is is disgusting. Of course. Like it's of not course just, he is. It's not just of women. Course. Come on. Everybody plays a part in this. It's always our fault. Yeah. It, it is your actually... fault. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry. We got to bring some lightheartedness to this severe situation that I am I am not happy about. Yeah. Um. So there's no way for Xi to know if the population is going to increase in 2040 or beyond. Uh, Right now, the United Nations has the Chinese population decreasing by... And also, also I think his ego probably plays into it. Because why would he wait a couple decades? He's not going to be around for, like, ever. Correct. Yeah, he's 2040. He's already... Yeah, you're exactly... Yeah, so he he wants to get Taiwan under his belt now. Yeah. He so wants, his name can be attached, like that's part of his legacy right there. Yes. So uh, as we get closer to, you know, him possibly getting unhealthy, possibly leading, you know, to, to death, we all die. I mean, that's that's just what happens. In yeah. that scenario, we definitely get closer to the invasion of Taiwan, just like you said, to cement his legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but how is the population going right now? You you mentioned it that it's aging and diminishing. Right. Yuen says that by 2050 it will be de- it's going to decrease by a hundred million. So that that's an incredible decrease in population. And, yeah. Wow. And the reason why I I said I don't feel like he would wait to increase the population mm-hmm. is that there's a funny thing about war. If you're successful as a country, it typically leads to a population boom. As the troops come back, they make babies. The you know, following World War II, the United States, the boomers, the boomers. our parents, our parents' generation, boomers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they. So the U.S. added 4.24 million new babies to the population every year between 1946 and 1964. Wow. That could go a long way for China. We were not messing around. (laughs) We were not. (laughs) 
and it's not just us um or after world war ii so go back to world war one and spain's population increased faster than any other country so yeah spain's population was 57 percent smaller in 1914 than it is today Um, oh wow the UK's population was 45% smaller, and then France and Italy were about 36 and 38% fewer people in 1914. Um, so that's a boom, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of babies, lots of new citizens. If if Xi sees the opportunity to win the, go- the global conflict and reintegrate Taiwan, that could be a boom for post-war population growth in China. Right. Now, I do want to say that this does not by any means diminish the fact that millions could be lost to the war. What I'm saying is she's not worried about that. Well, from one country seizing an opportunity to go to war to another, (laughs) let's talk North Korea. No, let's do it. Okay, did you really say that Kim Jong-un is ready, ready to go to war, go toe-to-toe with the West? (laughs) Um, I did. Um, that's what analysts are saying. As do I. <laughs> there you go. There you have it. As do I. Other analysts. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, Not an yeah. analyst. But um, yeah, this came about this week when North Korean leader Kim Jong-un declared South Korea as an official enemy of the state. He also abandoned the idea of peaceful reunification The for the two halves of the peninsula. So this is a significant departure from previous principles set by his grandfather and his father. Kim stated that North Korea's nuclear weapons are no longer just for deterrence. So the the regime has emphasized strengthening ties with Russia and China while diminishing that engagement with the United States. This is setting the stage for who's going to support North Korea if they get involved in a regional conflict on the Korean Peninsula. Now, the the country's rhetoric has become more aggressive, especially since Kim Jong-un took over. This is prompting concerns about potential military actions against South Korea. So, everybody, welcome to 2024. Now, this is the year where nothing is off the table in the realm of geopolitics, and we'll see what happens. I don't like it. Yeah, I do. I have not liked it so far since January 1st. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kervin. Is that all you have for us this week? That's all I have in geopolitics, if you want to talk a little bit about... Well, I personally wanted to thank everybody for the sweet messages that um i we got last week well i got last week whenever i had covid i really really appreciate all the messages i got i am so much better i still have the sniffles but obviously i'm not covid positive anymore and aside from the sniffles that's the only remaining symptom thank goodness that that round of covid was no Bueno. <laughs> yeah, you stayed in bed for not a, it was entire, a week, but it was, it was like, about a week. Oh, I'm, it, looked, it was, huh? My days are all mixed up. I forgot. Yeah, it was over a week. Yeah, I had to, I couldn't move for days. I don't, Why? It, it was a, bl- well, every time I get COVID, it's a blur. I stay in bed for a week, but I don't really remember doing anything the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. Um, January 2020, right? We don't know if you had COVID, but yeah, all the symptoms. It's just so weird thinking about that illness because literally the two weeks leading up to that, the only thing I did 
was go to my dad's um, dialysis clinic to learn how to do his um, in-home PD dialysis, yep. his peritoneal dialysis. We we trained on that for a couple weeks and nobody else got sick. I was the only one that got sick. So I don't know if it was COVID, but I remember. Oh, well. So interesting because you had to, you know, wash your hands every what, yeah. like five minutes. Yeah. It's, it's all about being clean and sterile and everything. And then you got sick. Yes. And it was only me and my dad and our training nurse in this room. So I wasn't socializing with a bunch of people or like <laughs> sne- having people sneeze on me or anything like that. And like I said, nobody else got sick. Yeah. That was, that and now was you're scary. sick. We're just passing stuff back and yeah, I think, even through. I think mine is uh, just being out in the cold, you know, even at night, super windy. And then Did you going, enjoy it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was so much. It was so much fun. Um, Did you see any aliens? Uh, no. And I, I didn't see anything that was like weird this Oh, week. man. I wanted yeah. to hear. I wanted a weird story. So no aliens came out this time. Yeah. Not this time, but hey, uh, next, you know, starting on Monday, we'll rinse and repeat, do it are again. You, are you going back into the mountains again? Yep. And are, okay. Yes, I'll be, oh, sorry, what? No, 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 we'll talk about that stuff privately, because I was okay. able to okay. um, say too much. So, yeah. Trying so. to think of what else, what else is going on in our lovely little lives? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It snowed here finally. That was nice. Did you get any snow where you were? There was snow on the ground um, just because we were further north and about the elevation is like 5,600 feet. So we're we're a little bit above normal um, circumstances. So there was some snow in places like patches. But other than that, no, it's supposed to on Monday snow. So that'll be interesting because we have to drive around. Well, so I have a question though. Yeah. Were you able to, did you have enough warm stuff or should you have bought the hand and foot warmers like I told you to? <laughs> I won't, I won't say anything. I want to know. I want to know. So I tried. me this week. No, um, he was you no, no, sir. I told him to buy the foot and hand warmers and he assured me that it would be fine and he didn't need them. And I know him. I and mean, it was it was super. You were you were freezing. You it were freezing. was cold, but at the glove, mm-hmm. like you know, I took your gloves, which were super helpful. A double. It would have been even more helpful if you would have put those heated hand warmers in them, like a. And I'm and I made him buy these new like outdoor boots. He wasn't going to buy them. He's like, no, I have these tennis, these running shoes. Oh, these will be fine. And I wouldn't let him go without those boots. And how did those boots work out for you? I did just well. pack for you. <laughs> um, I will. I'll just start paying you to pack for me and unpack because you also. <laughs> I just I know how much either. I like. I love the cold, but I also hate being super super cold so i was thinking of everything that would make me comfortable if i were in your shoes well i was like um, get him some all-terrain shoes hiking boot things and those boots came in very handy got compliments Mm -hmm. too everybody was asking if i liked them yeah because they were 
like I said, patches of snow. So I'm I'm stepping into almost ankle foot or ankle foot. Ankle, ankle deep. Ankle. Yeah. No. <laughs> um and so they really they really helped out because my socks stayed dry. Um, yeah. Uh, there was one point where you remember I would I texted you I'm on top of the mountain. Right. And so it was like myself and two other guys and we had to go different directions. Um so I had to hike it another three miles. So we hiked one mile up into the mountain and then I had to yeah. hike almost three miles back to where all of our gear was. Um, and and I do know that if I didn't have those boots, it would have been a struggle. And I probably I'm slipped so down smart. the mountain. I'm so smart. From now on, whenever you're going to do these little these little trips and stuff, you need to listen to what I would pack. <laughs> and, just, and just let me do it. Okay. Because you kept saying no to all of my suggestions. I had to... Those boots, I had to take them and run up to the front and pay for them really quickly because you kept putting them back onto the shelf. And I was like, no. Well, I have so many shoes. I just didn't want to have you buy me a shelter. There's nothing I am a shoe that. You have three pairs of shoes out here. (laughs) Yeah. You he's you're a shoe girl, and that's okay. You can like whatever accessories you want. I'm just here to support you by adding new outdoor shoes. This is a really long tangent <laughs> about hiking boots. We're so sorry. That's really all we have going on. <laughs> and if you're still listening, as we always say, you are the real heroes. Thank and you also, for that. And also, you're probably you probably know us personally because that's yeah. the only people who would stay <laughs> and listen to this. Us railing about your hiking boots. Ah. But next time I'm buying you hand and foot warmers and you can do nothing about it. Thank Alrighty. you. Thank you. Okay. So I think that's it. Um, I, I will say, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of training out here. Really good training. Um, we had put somebody out in the middle of the desert and mm-hmm. they did a very good job. So yeah, that was awesome. Cool. And now you get to, you get to do that again next week, right? Yep. All right. Okay. Well, I have things to do, and I know you have things to do, so yep. we should probably go do those things. Sounds good. So I've got nothing. You? Okay. Thank you so much for listening to our tiny little humble independent geopolitical podcast. We hope you found it both informative and engaging. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana. Thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.